Developers, 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 developers. Developers, 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 developers. Hello, and welcome to the Static Void Podcast. I'm Jess Chadwick. I'm Todd Snyder. And I'm Chris Gomez. And we are your hosts. Uh, We're recording this on the evening of May 8th, 2016, and tonight we're happy to have a special guest, Matt Hornsby. Matt is an experienced principal software engineer who has led teams building internet-scale applications such as healthcare exchanges and retail websites that are among the largest in the world. This led Matt to develop a passion for guiding his teams to build maintainable systems and write quality code. Tonight, Matt has joined us to talk about a concept he calls code sprawl. So, Matt, welcome, and thank you very much for joining us. We're really glad to have you. So, tell me, what the heck is code sprawl? Yeah, hey, guys. Thanks for having me here. It's uh, it's an honor to be on here. For a long time, I've been sort of looking at code, but not code for itself, like almost like a, like a metacognition kind of thing as it pertains to software. How code maps to the way that we think about problems, like how we cognitively think about problems, why things evolve the way that they do in software. Just generally, what can we do to improve, you know, the overall quality of software and understand why things rot over time? What this sort of led me to think about was, you know, there's there's uh, one of the guys I like a lot, uh, who's a, a, an interesting thinker in this field is a guy named Arlo Belshi. And he's been really sort of influential to to my thought process and, and thinking about how code sort of evolves, you know, what it means to write good code. He sort of introduced me to this, this idea of the M-shaped person. We've talked about like the I-shaped person. That's the person who has like deep domain knowledge in, you know, one, one specific area, but they're not, it's not very wide. So it's sort of in the shape of an I. Um, and then the, we talk about the T-shaped person sometimes. So that's somebody who has a a deep knowledge in one domain, and then they're able to talk across the top. So you get a couple of people together that are sort of T-shaped, and they have the common language to talk across the top and you know, maybe naive language, but you can go up and down these stacks because the people can communicate across the top. So what Arlo mentions is this idea of like the M-shaped person. And that's a person who is able to have these sort of multiple domain expertise in one mind. So you have no, there's not context switching. There's not the communication gap, gap talking between two people uh, that have some different domain knowledge, but you're doing it at the speed of thought. And the thing that I found really interesting about it was he mentioned that when you have people that are like that, you can think very quickly across these different domains and you can sort of creatively or accidentally misapply concepts from one domain into the other domain. And that's where real innovation comes from. It's thinking about two things that you've never, you've never put them together before, right? I don't know. I'm really into woodworking. I like woodworking. I like sailing. Are there concepts that I can put together that, that go from one to the other in sort of weird ways that you wouldn't put together? That's sort of a long-winded way of saying how I think that I got here to start thinking about this idea of code sprawl, which comes from the idea of urban sprawl and the way that towns and cities have sort of sprawled out into suburbs and beyond over the last few hundred years. And so it's, uh, it was sort of a realization that as code ages, uh, it sort of seems to follow similar patterns uh, to how civilization ages and how as we get more and more people, we try to pack things together, we end up with a lot of very similar kinds of patterns 
and code as well. So that led me to do a, a little bit more thinking and some research on this. And uh, it turns out there's a, a lot of kind of concepts that, that map into that domain pretty well. Uh, one of the, the interesting books that uh, talks about this is a book called the Sprawl Repair Manual. And we can put a link up to that later. But in it, it talks about different generations of code sprawl, uh, sorry, urban sprawl. And I, I saw that there was, uh, as I was looking through there, I was like, man, this sounds really similar to the ways that especially enterprise or large-scale software tends to sort of evolve over time. So in a way, one of the things it sounds like we're saying is that the way urban sprawl occurs, we can scientifically define it. It's not, it's not necessarily a choice. It's a natural evolution. And then you're seeing parallels in our code bases. Yeah, I think that's a, a good way of thinking about it. You know, when we look at uh, these different generations of urban sprawl, you can sort of think back to um, pre, uh, pre-car, like pre-automobile, and even before trains were invented. Um, think back to, you know, medieval times. Um, you had kingdoms that were, they had a tight urban core. Everything, all of the uh, the commerce, you lived and worked in the same place and you could walk everywhere, right? Everything was in this tight urban center and uh, you, everything was in there. You couldn't go that far outside of it. You had countryside and you could get places via, you know, horseback, things like that. Um, but general day-to-day living, everything was in this tightly packed, dense urban core. So um, in, in this this book, The Sprawl Repair Guide, talks about this first generation of sprawl as being when rail cars were created. And uh, now you had this, this tight urban core with very distinct uh, like railway paths. And you could get from place to place. You could start moving outside of the urban core, but you still had very, very well-defined paths that you would go through. Um, and you would find that smaller communities would build up around the uh, the railroad stations. It still wasn't gigantic towns. It was um, some of the services that used to be in that tightly packed urban core um, started to migrate out, and you'd have these small communities that would pop up around the the, the railway stations. So you know maybe some small uh, you know groceries stores things like that would pop up around there, but it was still you you couldn't stray very far if that makes sense. It was there was not really any sprawl yet. It was very well thought out. Um, these, uh, the, the way that you would get from place to place was still very tightly bound by how the railroad system was, was more or less designed, right? So the way that I thought about that in terms of what that looks like in code, this is sort of uh, your well-defined, like cohesive urban core of, of cross-cutting concerns, things like that. You don't have... Um, you don't have duplication everywhere. You have very well-defined messaging flow. It's not, there's not a lot of copy-paste. It's just everything is, this is, this is your, when you first start off with a, a good project. You get to have, the architecture looks great. Design looks great. You haven't run into any of your edge cases yet. You haven't run into, you know, your business partner saying, oh, what about this? And having it, you know, slightly, just chip away at that. So this is sort of like, the railroad stations where it was well thought out sort of planned message flows and architecture. You still have this urban core of your data access layer. If that's how you, how you uh, architected it, you're logging all of your stuff sort of still in this, this dense urban core 
and your messaging flow looks really good. There's nobody going around uh, your, your, your design at that point, if that makes sense. Is this also maybe when there's less people involved, like a couple senior folks are kind of brainstorming the thing? Yeah, I think that's probably, I hadn't thought of that, but I think that's a great way of thinking about it because, you know, it's, there's still not a ton of, of people involved. It's not that you, you have to get a few people here and there, um, you know, in, in sort of the, the physical manifestation of, of this first generation of Sprawl. Um, but yeah, I think as you, uh, as you add more people, you add more developers to the mix. Um, I think one of the, one of the interesting things is like, I feel like software is a manifestation of how the author of that code mentally maps that problem, how, how they, how they think about the problem. And we all think about the problem totally differently. I've run experiments on teams before where, uh, we, I set out and say, here, solve this really easy problem. I want to see how everybody does it. And even for very simple things, it was always very surprising to me to see just how differently people thought about a problem. And really when you look at somebody's code, that is a map of their thought process. And it's a mental model of how they approach the problem. And I think uh, for me, that is one of the reasons why everybody's code sucks but mine, right? Because I think about it differently than you you guys would, and right? So uh, part of it <laughs> is that when I look at someone's code, it's good if it looks like how I would solve yeah, the problem. Yeah. And it's bad if you think about it a totally different way and, and solve the problem a different way. So yeah. Well, that's why I think, I think that a, the code review, it's very important to actually talk to people, right? It's not a code review is not I sit there and I look at your code in isolation. It's I have a conversation, right? We bring it up and we talk about it. What, what was your thought process? How did you get to this point? Yeah, I, that's that's dead on. I mean, because yeah. we have to be able to communicate why we solved the problem that way. And I think the code review is, a, is a, an essential way of doing that. Yeah. Um, I have a similar conversation with my team where I, I put up two blocks of code that are exactly the same. And on the right, I say, this is this is bad code. And on the left, they say, this is good code, right? And I say, yeah. the difference <laughs> is the thought process, right? Did you go and did you research and find all the different ways to do this? Or did you just throw it together and it worked and you just moved on, right? Yeah, and it's, yeah, it's funny that way. And it's, you even see it in real life. You know, I've had, I've had conversations or arguments with, you know, girlfriends and stuff like that in the past for dumb yeah. things. Like yeah. how you load the dishwasher, right? Like, <laughs> I, I think of it as like a pre-sort algorithm. Like as my hand is moving down, I'm pre-sorting each piece in there so that when I'm done, when it's done, I can just pull it out. Yeah. Right. Yep. yep. And I've had people that are like, no, crazy. that's, like- that takes too long. I'm just going to put it wherever there's space. Yep. The water's not going to get in there if all of these pieces yep. that are alike are sitting right next to each other, right? So, <laughs> My wife and I have gotten to the point where if one of us starts loading and then walks away and the other one comes, we, we just have to undo it. Just completely remove everything and start <laughs> over again. Both yeah. of us. Yep. Yeah. It's so, I mean, it, a lot of the stuff just, it, it transcends the code. It's just really about how we're thinking about a problem. And um, that's all software is. We think of ourselves as being like very technical people. We use the word engineers, things like that. But really, most of the people that are in this industry for a long time are just problem solvers, right? We're people that uh, like solving problems. And uh, software just has, it happens to be this really malleable way of doing that. So, um, but we all think about it differently. So, so like compared to Urban Sprawl, are you thinking that what we developers have that mirrors that is uh, the power to just 
pave out a new road without really talking to anybody. Yeah. <laughs> just saying, look, I just built a new side street and I decided to put a condo yeah. there. I know that nobody else was thinking about that, but. Well, oh, yeah, well. I think there is a really big component of that. Um, when you start moving into the next generation past, you know, the, the, the train being created, um, the automobile really, it transformed the American landscape. And um, things started becoming subordinate to automobiles. It used to be that the way that you built things was subordinate to people, people getting from one place to another. But when the automobile was was created, it now for the first time allowed you to go from any point to any other point. And because of that power, everything started building up around that. Uh, you had roads everywhere. Uh, you started seeing uh, buildings that had gigantic seas of parking lots and pavement, right? Um, it changed everything. It changed architecture. It changed uh, the way that we go about our lives. And it eventually allowed us to now stray from that urban core for the first time and get away from it. And so what you started seeing was new highways and interstates. Uh, you started seeing car-dependent sprawl around, around these new highways. You can now no longer walk to the grocery store. You have to drive to the grocery store, right? Um, communities and like residents now, you know, like I mentioned, they, they sort of became subordinate to automobiles. And the way I think about this in code is, is like you said, Chris, it's, uh, it's lowered cohesion. It's difficult to follow messages. Now you can get anywhere from anywhere. You don't have to follow the train route. Like you don't have to go to the train station and get on to get to and from the places. Um, and because of that, there was no, there's no like cohesion around how the, all of the, the, commercial sites and places and parks and everything that, that you used to go to, they can just sprawl everywhere now. So um, actually what I think of, of this is that you start seeing code duplication and not just code duplication, but concepts being duplicated in different parts of the code base, partially because you don't know about that it exists somewhere else, um, but also because you can, because it's easy um, and you start seeing that these concepts diverge over time. And I sort of think of it like strip malls in a way. Every strip mall is basically the same thing. It's the collection of a bunch of stores, right? And they follow very similar like architectural constructs, um, but they diverge a little bit over time. So you'll, you have the sort of like clone stamp uh, communities. Um, you know, I grew up in Southern California. You go over there, you go down there and every town is the same exact thing. It's stamped over and over and over again for hundreds and hundreds of miles. And it's sort of, a lot of places, it's sort of ugly and soulless and uninspired. And I found the code sort of follows that route sometimes. And, uh, you know, I've talked with people about this before. This is where you start seeing the introduction of things like uh, inversion of control containers. You start seeing a lot of, uh, a, a lot of practices emerge around, like, um, dependency injection and stuff like that. And um, when you start seeing that, uh, that's one of the areas in code where, where you start really seeing a lot of this sprawl. The messages uh, that are flowing around the system are now no longer able to be followed easily. All roads lead back to your DI container, right? And um, you bootstrap everything at the beginning of an app. Um, and then if you ever want to trace where messages are going, it all flows back to that DI, the IOC container in there. And so that's, that's sort of where I start thinking about the parallels in that sort of second generation of, of sprawl. So Matt, earlier on, you, you mentioned something about 
the idea when you first start out on a project, things are clear cut. You have a clear set of use cases and someone introduces a new requirement or they want to change something. Is that one of the cause of, of code sprawl? All of a sudden now I have to handle a different use case, slightly similar, but there may be differences. Yeah, I think there is, that's a lot of it. I mean, if you thought about uh, the, the earlier example of like a train station and uh, a train route, like what happens if somebody said, Hey, we want you to, um, we know that you have this train station that goes from, you know, here to Los Angeles or whatever, but what if, what if we want to go, um, to San Diego instead? Like now what, now do you have to, you can't like, there's not a real easy way to do that, but software is so malleable that we can't like, we can just duplicate things. We can create, you know, separate branches in the code to do different stuff. It's so easy. And, uh, I think one of the things that, you know, we can talk about later is, um, this idea of, um, this, this, there's human cognition, like our working memory is so small when you think about it, you know, there's that whole magic number that tells about how many things that we can keep in our subconscious mind all the time. And it's like, I think it's five plus or minus two, something like that they talk about. And there's a related, uh, psychological phenomenon that, um, is fairly fascinating. And the idea is that what you see is all there is. And what this is, is that, uh, whatever's in your mind, like if you are sitting there thinking about a problem or you're trying to understand an architecture or design of code, uh, you think that at that moment you have all of the knowledge that you need in your mind in order to move forward and make decisions, but you actually don't. We know that there's only so much that you can fit in your working memory. And the insidious thing about it is that you feel like you are bringing all of your knowledge to bear on it and you're just not. So, Um, there's this sort of mental house of cards that you need to build up and you have to be very, very, uh, diligent about the cognitive overhead that you are placing upon people when they are reading your code. And so that's where the, the sprawl thing really becomes a problem. Um, when you start having these meandering message patterns, um, you don't have a clear cut architecture anymore. You're placing a huge burden on the reader, uh, and you fill up their, their mental, uh, house of cards quickly and that's all they can keep in there so you think that you have this whole thing built up in your mind but you don't and and you don't even realize it so you're making decisions based on knowledge that you can't possibly have at that moment because you already paged it out yeah it's your interpretation yeah. of it yep <laughs> you're basing decisions on your interpretation yeah, which can lead to lots of problems in software yeah so i mean what we want to do is we want to leave breadcrumbs we want to build uh we want to build our architectures and designs in ways that um even if you don't you're not able to keep it all in your mind at once um that there are aggregations and there's patterns and things that make it very easy to understand what's going on so um there's there's uh patterns that you can use in your code. One thing I really like is to um make sure that the actual like the file system itself says something about the design of your code. So I don't even have to open your code. I can look at a layout of, of, your, uh, of your code base. And without opening any code, I can, I can understand the concepts in the system and uh, a general uh, design, a general architecture of your system. And it's, it's a big part with 
naming so of the files. The you know, of the files uh, I've talked with Chris about this pattern a lot that I really like um, for certain types of software development, and it's uh, it's the it's the mediator pattern. It's one of the gang of four patterns. Um, but what I like to do, uh, if you take your your basic ASP.NET MVC app where you have a controller um, and the calls are coming into that, and then you're going and talking to some backend model or backend you know data access layer or whatever to get your answers. Um, the the pattern du jour, it seems like for the past, I don't know, five to 10 years has been the repository pattern. So you create repositories that model some, some section of your code. And it's usually built around some entity like customer or order or whatever. You have an order repository. And then you have these order DTOs and you've got mappers that go back and forth. And um, it's, it, it's, that's been the way that we've been sort of uh, building software for a while. Um, but I find that it doesn't really um, it doesn't really communicate anything about your system. It doesn't communicate anything about the queries that you're you're utilizing in the system or uh, the commands that you are uh, that you're sending through your system. And so I, I think of a query as any time that you are asking for information um, to do something with, to do calculations on, and a, a command is saying, "Hey, subsystem, please do something on my behalf." And so there's a lot of talk about um, how we do command query segregation. That's a, that's one of the the things that you know we talk about sometimes in design. And so I actually like to model that with the way that I write classes is create a class, a, create a class called um, customer order query or whatever, and that is now a file that you just look in the file system and you can see. I've got a, uh, a directory that has queries. It's just queries. And you look in there, and it will tell you every query that is important to that system. And you don't even have to break open code. You know at a, at a basic level sort of what's going on. Same thing with commands. Like if I want to do something like, um, say, uh, purchase shopping cart, I can have a purchase shopping cart command that I send off to some subsystem that deals with it. And you can see it right there in, in the application directory without knowing anything, without breaking anything open. And so that's one that I found that really helps to keep the amount of stuff that you need in your head uh, a little bit lower. You mentioned, I might be getting onto the, the wrong aspect of this, but you mentioned that you'll, you'll have a folder named queries or a folder named commands. So that's actually how you would organize your project. You don't apply any kind of domain organization. Like you had mentioned orders, right? There's no orders folder under yeah. which you have commands and queries or or there is. No, I think that's a that's a great call out. And I, I, what I try to do with it is, in a simple system, you may have, you know, a handful of queries, and so you can fit them all sort of in in one area. But if you start getting bigger and bigger, and you see that you have these sort of aggregates or these these sort of bounded contexts, if you're talking about like the domain driven design parlance, um, then sure, group those together. You might have an, an you know queries and then uh, orders, and then you might have the all of the order queries underneath that. But the key thing for me is that don't make me think like if I can look over and I can see this, uh, this directory structure, I know something about the design and I know something about um, the important concepts that are happening in the system without having to dive in and dig through a bunch of esoteric stuff that I've never seen before. Well, I think it is true that when I open a project for the first time that may, might be anywhere from six days old to six weeks old to six years old at work, right? What do I do? I start cruising through Solution Explorer, and I'm just opening folders if it's been put in folders. And if we've one thing we can do in our world in .NET is put 
as many classes as we want in a file. So maybe the Java guys are forcing that a little bit because you can't. And uh, it, it can be both infuriating. It can be infuriating when you realize that a, a, a file that maybe is, you know, like you said, it's maybe it's on, on the on the surface. It says that it's an order query.cs, and then you open it and you find five queries in there. But then on the other hand, I'm guilty of it myself, where I say, well, the only here's a little helper class that like it, it it's only really helping me get this job done, so I'm not going to break it out. It's probably famous last words, right? <laughs> or maybe I'm doing something wrong to begin with by writing that. Yeah, right. Separating your domain by putting it all in one file. <laughs> <laughs> With regions. Don't forget to use regions. Yeah. Oh. And you know, it's not even... It's it, We've been taught that it's bad, like one class per file. But there's a lot of times where it actually makes sense to combine them together. And it's all about... To, for me, it's all about reducing uh, the cognitive overhead of, of understanding and consuming the code. So... That's what I, number one thing when I'm designing something, if there's not some other completely overriding concern, like, you know, right now I'm working on something where the number one thing is it has to respond in crazy, crazy quick times. Um, So that's the number one concern. So it it changes the whole architecture based on that. But when things like that are not present, it's all about the cognitive overhead. um, And that, that overlays and like begets everything. It begets um, maintainability of the code. Um, the overall, um, your overall ability to just comprehend what's happening there is, is so important, I think. So, you know, one of the other things I think is, is interesting, um, there was, uh, a British anthropologist named, uh, Robin Dunbar and she, or he, I, I'm not sure which, um, came up with this idea that, um, there's only a certain number of, of stable, relationships that uh, you can comfortably maintain. And this is more about sociology. So they came up with the idea, and this was based on the size of a primate's brain. So looking at human brains, determined that we can only comfortably maintain about 150 stable relationships at any time in our lives. Um, And it just gets too complicated after that. The interesting thing about that is you see that when you start getting above this number, it generally requires more restrictive rules and laws and enforce norms to maintain stability and like a cohesive group after you get too big. So you have to start enacting laws. You have to start enacting coding standards, design standards, things like that when you get, start getting too big. I think that you also look at, I think I read this in uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point. He, he mentions that there's this, this community that uh, I believe they came from the same origins as like the Mennonite and Amish folks. They're, they're called Hutterites. And what they do is when they get to that number, 150, they split their colony. They actually go and create a daughter colony and they start over. They take some people from that one that was successful and they move it somewhere else. Um, and it was for this very reason that like, as your graph, your social network gets too big, uh, it's no longer, it's no longer a tightly knit, uh, cohesive group anymore. And to me, that's like Facebook. Like when I had five friends on there, when it first came out, I was way more loose with what I would put on there. And now that everybody is on there and it's so visible, I hardly use it anymore because it just like, it doesn't feel like a group anymore. So um, that's another one where I think that sort of concept, we can apply (laughs) it to our code and we can essentially say that when you have too many relationships, too many classes or too many uh, ways that you have code over here, talking to code over here, that it becomes unmanageable in our tiny brains that we have. And 
uh, you have to you have to split it up and you have to put things together in ways that they can stay cohesive um, and not completely overwhelm you and make it so that you have to put these extra rules uh, and standards and things like that in place uh, to keep order. So what happens when you have either the senior person because of experience or maybe just because they're brilliant is capable of more in their head, but yet the rest of the team has to keep up? Does that have an effect on how the code sprawls? Or it means that this senior guy is asking us all to operate without a map, but he's got it clear in his head. I think oftentimes the senior guy is the guy who wrote a lot of the code, so it makes sense to him. But also, I, yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> it maps onto his mental model of how he solved that problem. Um, but even when that's not the case, I, I think it's I think that's another area that would be interesting to to do some studies on, um, particularly how it relates to just our normal like social interactions. Like you get somebody in a leadership position and they just say that this is how it's done. You get to do it this way, right? Um, and, you know, there's a lot of politics that go into that. That's an interesting one. It would, it would be interesting to, to spend some more time thinking about how that, how that affects things. Um, but I do think that it's sort of incumbent upon people in those senior roles to be the ones that are looking out for this urban sprawl, this code sprawl. They're the ones that should be noticing when things are starting to go that path and they should be the ones that are thinking about how do I stop this or how do I rehabilitate the code, um, you know, once it starts going down that, that sprawl. Um, the, uh, the book I was mentioning before about uh, sprawl repair talks about a third generation of, uh, of urban sprawl. And uh, she calls it ex-urban. And this is where you start seeing things like gated communities, corporate campuses, like strip malls things that are only accessible via automobile and are starting to sort of like be walled off now. So I, I think of this in the ways of like, we've got a problem in the code and we've, we've seen that there's this piece of code over here that is like, that's no man's land. Nobody wants to touch that. <laughs> so we're going to wall it off and we're not going to touch that anymore. And because we don't want to get in there and touch it, we're going to create this other piece over here and it's going to be beautiful. Like nobody's going to mess with it. We're just going to, create this new little uh, island over here and it's going to be walled off and it's going to have gates around it and it's going to be beautiful, right? Um, problem is now you start getting concepts that are they're fully cut and paste in some cases. I call that clipboard inheritance. <laughs> it's too painful to re refactor the existing stuff. So you just move the things that you uh, you don't want to live in this old crufty area to somewhere new. Um, and it's, it's often sort of as, as a reaction to the mess. And you start putting strict boundaries and standards that are stood up around this new code, right? And this, this is where that sort of Dunbar's number kind of goes in here. It's like you start putting restrictive rules and laws on things. Um, it's like gated communities and where you start seeing master planned uh, neighborhoods with homeowners associations, you start putting that stuff up because you don't even know each other. Like if everybody knew one another and, and you, uh, you all had a common set of social mores and stuff like that, you wouldn't need to worry about is Chris going to mow his lawn? You know, is he going to paint his house aquamarine or something like that? Um, but at this point that that urban core that we talked about before, it's fully in decline. Like things that used to exist there are now spread everywhere. Um, usually it's like core services that you start off with, but they start to leak out to other parts of the app. You'll start seeing uh, like logging in different places. You'll see um, things not necessarily going through your, your beautifully crafted data access layer. Now you're, you've got pieces over here that 
maybe they're talking to the database through a, a different mechanism or um, just bypassing it entirely. Yeah, they just go after the tables. Yeah. I've seen it. I've seen it where, well, wait, we had this abstraction layer. In fact, we even had a, a whole service that was designed to be the abstraction layer so that maybe we don't use a database someday. And then, oh, but this guy over here just went around straight to the tables. And it has this coupling effect. Yeah, it's true. And this is, we mentioned the repository pattern before. This is actually one where I see that happening quite a bit. Um, you start off with this repository and, you know, it's uh, segmented in such a way that makes sense at the time. You have a, you have a customer repository and then you'll have an order repository. And then what happens when you need something from both domains? Customer, you want to see customer orders. Well, now the, where does that belong? Does it belong in the customer repository? Does it belong in the order repository? Do you create a customer order service or something that gets them both and munges them together? Um, and so they, it, it starts becoming painful. And then things, um, you, you, you start, you start thinking of ways of trying to work around it. And so like code that should exist sort of in that urban core that probably should somehow exist in that repository, like it now starts getting crammed somewhere else and into this sort of diminished urban core. Cause that's the easiest place to put it. Maybe I create something that lays on top of these two repositories, but then you start figuring out that it's just not worth it in general because you always end up with a repository needing to talk to another repository and then you're done. And I, th that's why that, that pattern I find is, uh, is a good example of how some of this uh, starts to happen. And um, so when you're at that point, now you're fully in this like last generation of, of code sprawl. Now you've got things that are just walled off and you've got duplication and you've got no, there's no, soul anymore to the code what was once there what was once a clean beautiful architecture is now totally diluted and incomprehensible to what it used to look like so earlier we were talking about um dependency injection and ioc containers do you do you think that these that when you've decided to adopt an ioc container that unless you're careful or maybe your thesis is that even if you're careful that you've now contributed to sprawl in a way. Yeah, I do. And, uh, this is, this has been an unpopular opinion, but I actually feel like, uh, when you start using, um, uh, IOC containers, um, then you, you're already well down the path to this, this sort of code sprawl. And what I found that the, the pattern to be is it's well-intentioned. So here's what happens. Um, and you guys tell me if you've seen this pattern before in, in your, uh, the code bases that you've seen or the teams you worked on. Um, you have a team that decides that they want to start doing unit testing or they want to do better unit testing. Um, maybe they've heard about things like test-driven development and they're like, I'm going to try that. So the first thing that happens to a lot of these teams is, number one, they get stuck because they don't know how to begin. Um, and so they'll begin somewhere. And oftentimes it's going to be like this kind of naive uh, learning process, um, but they very quickly run into roadblocks. One of the first ones is, how do I test a private method? You can't. You don't. You test it through a public interface, but they don't know how to do that yet. They don't know how to write code like that yet, and they have code that is <laughs> uh, horribly uh, coupled 
to other systems and other services, which make it very, very difficult to test anything at all, much less this private method. So first thing you do, make everything public. Okay. Now, all of that stuff that you learned about what object-oriented programming was supposed to be is, starts coming under question. You don't have encapsulation mm-hmm. anymore. Everything is public. Um, and uh, all of these, these notions that we heard about the pillars of object-oriented programming, they just start to disappear. And inheritance is, you know, this is, this is another one of these things where we've learned over time that maybe inheritance is a bad thing. Um, encapsulation becomes um, less valuable now because you're, you're, you want to figure out how to test your code. But test-driven development, I found, which I really actually like, and I think that it's a, a very powerful teaching tool. Um, it illuminates areas where you need to learn, where you haven't quite figured out how to architect your code or design your code in a, a specific way. And every single time that you run into a, a situation where you say, I don't know how to test this, that's a red flag to say, you have something to learn. And so what ends up happening, I have found, is so you start saying, okay, I'm going to test this stuff now. It's really difficult because I have dependencies. I have nude up uh, a, a direct database connection, for example. I don't want to do that in my code. So I've heard about this thing called dependency injection. So now I will inject a database gateway or a repository or something like that. I'll just I'll inject that into a constructor somewhere. Great. Now you still have the dependency. It is just exposed. So that's one of the key things. People start thinking, I'm, I'm making my code more loosely coupled. But you're not. You're just exposing the dependencies at that point. Um, and then at some point, because you still don't know yet how to design objects, you run into other problems, like you have a lot of dependencies. And so you get to the point where you start injecting five, six, seven dependencies into some object. And now that becomes a pain. How do you get past that? You think, how do I continue to test this? Well, things like mocks come into the play, come into the picture. Mocking frameworks start easing your pain. They don't remove it. They just make it less painful. And then finally, you're like, how do I wire all this stuff together? Well, there's these cool things called IOC containers, and they have this magic auto-resolution. You just have to like register all of your stuff in there. You register all your dependencies, and boom, like magic, they wire themselves up. So once again, you have not made your code less coupled. It's still the same level of coupling as it ever was. It's just hidden now. Right. And the problem then becomes... Now I have no idea. Like I said before, all roads lead to the DI container. And if you want to go and comprehend the code, good luck. Everything that happens gets nude up in the dependency injection framework or your IOC container. And now it's super hard to get out of. You you have to figure out how to go to the next step, which is to truly decouple your code, which we could talk about (laughs) for a long time. But, um, the, the IOC container, the, the DI container stuff is to me one of the one of one of the, the big signs that you've got um, you've got some pain around your your code and, and you've got some sprawl there now. Like there's you have no pattern anymore. There's no defined flow from object A to object B. That when you had the train station before with the 
with the, the specific train tracks that went somewhere. You don't have that anymore. It's a bunch of cars driving everywhere. And uh, you hide that behind interfaces and it makes it even harder to look at. So that's one of the things that um, I know that in the projects I've worked on, I've gotten away from that and, and tried to work with patterns that actually really do decouple things instead of acting like they're being decoupled and placed in an IOC container. So can you give us some examples of that? Like, yeah, so, what's a concrete example of, because I mean, dependency injection, I don't know how you get around it without, but if you wanted to achieve that loose coupling, you still need something that manages all these relationships and, and stuff. So not following yeah. how you solve the problem. So this would be, this would probably be easier to, to show some examples here, but um, actually one of the, one of the ways that I like, I mentioned before was this idea of, uh, of a mediator pattern. And so um, if you think about how you generally uh, see like an MVC uh, controller, uh, what I'll see is mm-hmm. I'll see a, a controller that has some sort of auto resolution of dependencies. At, it'll inject uh, an I repository or something like that. And that's, that's what you call to get the information that that controller needs. Um, and then a bunch of other stuff, I logger and I credit card processor and whatever you've got this whole grab bag of stuff, but should the controller actually have to care about all that stuff? It just wants an answer. It doesn't need to know that a repository even exists, right? So you're adding to the mental burden and that, that mental house of cards, um, every time that you're injecting something like that, um, when I'm looking at a controller, I don't care if there's a credit card gateway involved in processing this order. I just want to know, does this person have a credit card? I want to know, I want to submit an order. I don't care about what happens. I don't care who answers the call. So with the mediator pattern, you have uh, this mediator in between. And it's basically the concept of an event bus. And you have these queries and you have commands. And all you have to know about is that this mediator is going to do the wire up. Somebody's going to answer the call. I don't care who. I can send a query off and I can say, I can create a new query that says, um, you know, credit, credit card exists query. And I can send this off to the mediator, to this bus. And something else is wired up to handle that. It's sort of like a pub sub model. And so I don't have to know who, who answers the call. I have a very specific, like, basically a domain specific language around those queries or those commands. Um, and I can send it off to the ether and I will get a response back. And so I don't have to care about any of that. And the great part about it is that um, in some ways it's similar to the concept of a DI or IOC container and that you are wiring up dependencies. But in this case, you're wiring up things that are handling a question. So it's similar in concept, but you're wiring handlers up to handle this type of query. So in a way, it becomes a central container similar to a, a DI container, but it's very different um, in its execution. So again, think of it like an event bus and you're just sending queries and commands off. I found that for most of those kinds of things, that's what we're doing. That's Those are the services that we're wiring up in a dependency injection framework or an IOC container anyways. Um, but it does it in a way that keeps the narrative intact, if that makes sense. So it sounds like in many ways you're you're advocating having more strongly typed things, like you said, get credit card or verify credit card, having concrete dependencies on things instead of an abstraction like repository, 
a repository may have 10 different methods to do this, you would now have potentially 10 different, almost sounds like message objects. It almost That's sounds like you're talking more about a messaging type system. Yeah. It, as opposed to classes oriented systems. Yeah. And, you know, you still have classes. The classes become very cohesive because I have a class that just handles one command. I have a class that handles one query. I don't have a, a repository that has a whole bunch of methods on it. I have very, very tiny mm-hmm. handler things that just deal with this one piece of it. But I think one thing that you mentioned was interesting is um, it's not, I don't think it's so much about uh, necessarily the concreteness because one way of decoupling things is by uh, not using objects at all. So, um, for example, I'm a big fan of functional programming. And um, in languages like C-sharp, that turns into a func or an action, right? And so if I know that I need information mm-hmm. um, or that I need to uh, call something to, to do something on my behalf, again, these sort of commands or queries, what if instead of injecting into the, my class, what, instead of giving me a repository that I can go query, how about you just give me a function and I'm just going to call that thing. I don't care where it came from. I don't care if it's, came, if it's an object, I don't, whatever. It's just a function that is passed into me and I can call that thing. Um, that lowers the complexity in a lot of ways and it actually decouples things. It actually really decouples things. Instead of there being a dependency on an object or some, some object that I have to know about now, I don't care about that. I know that I have a function that I can just call to get the thing and it, that function can come from anywhere. So that's another great um, pattern that, that I like to use where I can um, is is actually give you give you the function to call, and then at that point classes just exist to host functions and and methods, and a little more yeah. than that. Yeah. yeah, or to sort of sort of glue things together, and you end up with a, a bunch of yeah bunch of functions right. that that do things. So to to Todd's point, you end up with kind of class explosion, and I don't necessarily mean that negatively. I'm just saying you you end up with a whole lot more classes because you end up with what what is effectively a class per function, whereas you you may have had ten or twelve functions or or methods in a in a class before in one class and one file. Now you've got twelve classes and potentially twelve files. I know you had the class versus files discussion earlier. Um, I don't think it cares though, right, Matt? Because let's say let's say I'm an an object that needs to do three things, and so I'm asking you for three functions. Nowhere in that are we saying that they can't come from an instantiated object, a static object. Uh, an interface. I don't care how you get it to me. They could be three public methods on the same object still, if that makes sense in your concrete implementation. Like sure. you were talking a little bit earlier about, you know, maybe what the controller really wants is the is the credit card processor and not to know a whole lot of the details. And it's like, well, maybe we even take a step back and say, I really just want the cashier because when I go to the store, the cashier can handle lots of forms of payment. He can handle a credit card. He could handle, I could give him some cash. I might give him a gift card. And so the controller in this case is like, I don't even really care. Just some cashier here handle this. And so if I am giving you a, a credit card processor, a function in the credit card processor object, it could be a concrete public method. But all I care about is funk that takes a funk that I will pass these parameters, maybe how much money or is required for me to accept the transaction and maybe what the thing is you're buying, and then tell me if it worked. So I, I get a bull back, and so that's 
now I'm totally decoupled. You could give me an object if you want. You could give me an interface. Yeah, I think that's I think that's key. Is like, um, yeah, there's well, and you know the other part I think um, that you were mentioning before was that um, maybe you have some class explosion now too, and um, I think I think that can be true. But what I would say is, it seems to me that the the sort of uh, the concepts they existed somewhere, and they were probably all of those concepts were all in one one class before they might all have been in one repository sure and now what you're doing is you're making that explicit and you Mm -hmm. are naming those things and they become their own sort of microcosm and they can become a very uh cohesive object a very cohesive query or query handler or command that you're issuing to the system and i found that um a lot of these things are 20 lines of code like it's an it's an object that is 20 or 30 or 50 lines of code um and you can compose them together in novel ways right you know, and then it's all about this composition, idea of composition instead of having inheritance hierarchies and, and things like that. Um, so yeah, you end up with you end up with a lot more classes in some cases, but they're they're very clear on what they do. Yeah, and compose them together in multiple ways, right? Like your your mm-hmm. example before of yeah, I use this one to get customers, but I also use it to get the customers when I'm doing the customer order query as well. Yeah, that makes that yeah. makes a lot of sense. You know, the other thing I like about um, being able to put them together that way, and, and um, especially with this idea of, of doing it with this sort of event bus or a mediator, is that um, you can wrap things up and chain things together in interesting ways. So, for example, let's say that um, I want to log the results of, of these queries that I'm answering, or I want to log um, how long they take to execute. Uh, the naive way to do that is put some, put some timing code in each of these these objects. Um, but because you have this middleman, this mediator that is taking an incoming message, finding the person who is supposed to answer it, and then calling that and re- returning the message back up the chain, you can now do interception in there. So you can say things like, hey, I know that this guy actually is supposed to handle this question, but before I delegate it to him, I'm going to wrap it, I'm going to decorate it with a logger, a timing logger. And now that actual, like your domain code in that little handler is super concise. Like you don't have any, any logging code to log entry and exit. Um, if you have to bake in uh, security, like maybe only certain people can execute this command. You don't have to put it in that, in that object anymore. You're looking at this really tiny, concise thing that is, uh, there's, it, it removes that cognitive overhead. I don't have to read through a bunch of logging or security. I can remove null checks in a lot of cases so that now I'm just looking at the actual pure code. So that's, uh, to me, that's where, you know, things like cohesion really come in and, and they really make a huge difference. So it, it sounds like in many ways you're, you're advocating, you think about, you talk about event bus, almost having work, work, workflow or orchestrated driven um, code for your mediators. Before you talked about the idea that I have customer and I have orders and now I need to have, some way to get the orders for a customer. It almost sounds like what you're advocating is this idea. I'd have a customer thing to get the customer data. I have something I can get the order data, but then I have this mediator in between that would know how to work with both in order to answer that question. But that sure. mediator would only try to answer that question. It wouldn't try to answer a bunch sure. of other questions. Well, so in this case, actually the, you know, the mediator just acts as a conduit between the question asker and the question answerer, right? 
And so what becomes interesting there is you don't necessarily think about I have I have to get, I have to get a customer and then I have to go and make a separate call to get a bunch of orders and there's two separate things that are dealing with that. How about instead I just have something that responds to a query that is get me all of the orders for this customer. And now you package that all up in this one thing. And maybe there's some duplication with some other thing that needs to deal with customers. Who cares? It's all this self-contained package. And you can read it from top to bottom. You understand what it's doing. And in, duplication isn't always bad. In the cases where you can actually like wrap up, uh, wrap boundaries around things, it's okay if you have some, some duplication uh, in your code. If, in my opinion, if it makes it so that it is more comprehensible and, um, you know, it can, it can change at a different rate too. So that's fine. We end up doing ungodly things in the, you know, to, to keep duplication out of the system. And, uh, and sometimes that's, that damages the design in my opinion. Yeah. I think duplication is bad when it absolutely has to be the same everywhere, right? Then you have to be referring to the same, uh, same implementation, the same logic, Whereas if you kind of do the copy and paste and, and, and let it diverge, if they are able to diverge in, in, at, for, at different timings and for different reasons, then that's perfectly acceptable, right? Yeah, right. And even you see that behavior um, sort of exemplified now in this the craze around things like microservices. Like you're actually saying, we're just going to create this other little service that does our own stuff, knowing that there might be something else already in, in the system somewhere that that does a lot of the same stuff, but we're going to do it um, so that we can be agile. We can move, we can, uh, we can change at different paces. Right. So I think we're starting to see that it's not always a bad thing. Yeah, sure. So one of the biggest problems that I've found, especially in larger code bases is discoverability. Um, Mm -hmm. And and I've also seen that drive a lot of decisions even earlier on from typically the more senior folks who have said, well, in other systems, they gotten so large that I never knew where anything was, right? Um, And so that's kind of where I I was speaking to earlier about the the class explosion. Um, And, you know, I in particular don't necessarily have a problem with seeing a lot of classes in a project and kind of finding my way around as long as there is a, 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 a pretty logical folder structure in place that, that kind of helps you get around. Right. I mean, it's, it's your map, right. In this, in this metaphor of the city, it's your map of the city. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And so, you know, regardless of whether they're in the, there's multiple functions in a class and multiple classes in the same file, as long as it, there is some kind of, conventional way or some way you can find yourself around that's fine um but typically the the biggest problem i see is that these systems get so large there's just so much to keep track of and so much to find and so much to map out that it becomes very difficult and i find people introducing these quote patterns um of basically cramming everything together to say well you want to know where this is anywhere in the system just go here and that's uh, i've seen it I've seen it um, manifest in several different ways. I've seen it in the God object, right? Where you have just one object with maybe a bunch of static methods and, you know, anything you need, you go to this one object and it points you to all this other stuff. And they, they all may be their own individual implementations, right? But this one God object ends up pointing to, to everything. Um, and then I've also seen it where, where the, uh, the dependency injection container is the bad guy. You're right. You, you want anything? Well, just, 
inject it into the constructor. I don't know where it comes from. You know, you get it. And then along those same lines, using the dependency injection framework as the service locator, where you're literally saying, you know, Mm -hmm. service locator dot get me this instance. And that's how I know how to find it. And so all of these things, as far as I'm concerned, goes goes back to discoverability. So how do you address discoverability in this, uh, with, with the approaches that you take? What, what kind of patterns do you introduce to address uh, discoverability? Yeah, I think those are, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, discoverability and just comprehensibility of what's going on in general are so they're, they're, they're paramount. Right. And, uh, and when, when you use those patterns with a IOC container, for example, um, I think one of the things that, that you said there is like, Hey, we don't, we don't know where this goes. So let's, let's just inject it and we'll utilize it. Um, that, that to me is the area where, um, these this pattern specifically with using ioc containers for everything is so insidious is that it hides the pain so well that that it you haven't solved any problems yeah <laughs> you've actually exposed problems and maybe made them worse maybe made your cohesion worse just because you're not feeling the pain so much um and uh one of my favorite sayings, actually, this came from my other yep. side job, not really side job, but other area of interest around um, continuous delivery and, and DevOps and stuff. Um, the guy, Jez Humble, who literally wrote the book on continuous delivery, one of the things he says in his book is, um, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically says, if something is painful, do it more often. Don't do it less often. Don't figure out ways of not feeling the pain. Feel the pain. Live it do it more often because you're going to get tired of it and you're going to engineer yep. your way out of it. And so I say rip the bandaid yep. off with the IOC containers and actually look at the real yep. patterns and, uh, and, yep. and, and ways to truly decouple code and not pretend that you're decoupling code. And the thing that's challenging about that is that in order to do that, it pretty much spans the entire corpus of design knowledge that we have right now. In, in software. Um, it's not a quick fix. It's, it's actually pretty hard. You know, it's, um, there's a lot of, a lot of, of books and knowledge and, um, even patterns and things like that, um, that can come together to really help you fully decouple things. We, we talked a little bit about a couple of these, um, having sort of an event driven system can be one way. Um, using more functional concepts can actually, um, increase the, uh, increase the, the cohesion a bit in your ob- and basically in your code um, because you're not caring about where these things come from um, and you're lowering the amount of cognitive overhead that you need. Um, and so it doesn't matter if this function is being provided by some particular class or another. You can swap it out at any time. You don't even care about class level cohesion anymore or coupling because it comes from a function that is being passed in. So these are the things where it's, it's now more about how do you really decouple things. So things like a mediator pattern, which is basically an eventing system, um, can help. Things like separating your commands and queries um, and looking into some of the patterns that um, Greg yep. Young and folks have made uh, more popular around CQRS. Um, things of, of that nature, where you're actually looking at, let's really decouple things. Let's stop pretending. Um, those, are, those are the ones um, that that have been most influential to me. So now how do you p- apply this in, in, in the real world? Uh, so, because uh, you, I'm not, I'm not accusing you of not living in the, in the real world. What I'm saying is you are 
clearly very smart and I would love to have you on my team, but you are not scalable, right? Not everybody has access to you and not everybody has access to, um, to, to architects and folks that, that are, are very aware of these things and, and understanding and know how to break these things down. Right. Um, so for example, as you're talking about uh, dependency injection containers and talking about, you know, trying to get away from them and they're not really solving the problem, just they're just kind of pretending to solve the problem. All of your examples, everything that you're saying, I completely agree with. But to to hear you say, let's just ditch the dependency injection container, I think going away from what I see a lot of folks using now, which is just these you know, single classes with, with, uh, two or three methods in them and 500 lines a piece in the method, right. <laughs> Going from that to a dependency injection framework, that's always a step in the right direction, right? It may not be solving the problem, but at least it's helping them organize the code a little bit better and, and, and at least split things up and get a little more, you know, solid. Even if we're talking about a greenfield project, right? So how do you take folks on a greenfield project? So we're, you know, we're talking about completely new, not, not how do we change the existing code base? And yeah, from here, we're all developers who are used to dumping tons of business logic in a click handler. How do we, from scratch, we've got the, the world at, at our fingertips here. You know, how do we go from there to, uh, to implementing these patterns? What do we, what do we do? Yeah, so these are these are great questions. They're the hard ones, actually. And you know, I should I should clarify. Let's not ditch the DI container. The, let's not ditch IOC containers. Let's just not stop there. Remember what yeah. life was like before all of this stuff. That was the way that you did it, and we we've learned um, some better ways of uh, of at least now your dependencies are exposed. Before they were just it, hidden, yes, right? right, exactly. So at least yep. now. They're exposed, yep. and and hopefully you can look at you know the the, the method signatures or the the class si- prototypes and learn something about what they're doing. Uh, you you know that you have to inject these certain things, so it must be doing something with the credit card processor because else why would it require right, it, right? right? Yeah, I mean, I mean to say that they're not the, decoupled, they are. They are certainly less coupled than they were when they were all in the same method, right? (laughs) So to take those 20 (laughs) lines of credit card processing code that we happen to be right after the 20 lines of of getting the information from the customer and putting them in different classes and then wiring them back up, that is certainly more decoupled, right? Right. Just the fact that you didn't new it up, you've done a little bit less coupling. Yeah, I think the interesting thing there is that there is a... um, there are different levels of coupling. We don't think about them that often. Um, but if you look at the different sides of the spectrum, at one end, it's you knew something up. You have code level coupling. Even within your object, in your class, you have coupling at the code level. Um, that's one. That's probably the, I think that's the, the most coupling you can have. It's all in one class. Uh, you're newing everything up directly. And if you look like on the other side of the code, it's like, machine code it's like byte code that 
you know, you don't even have any structure to the code at all, um, but it's all just message passing. Um, but you can get less and less coupling. So you mentioned when I start injecting things, that is now a lower level of uh, coupling. Um, when you start talking about now not caring about the actual object that you're introducing, and it's just a function now, that's even a lower level of coupling. Sure. Because now you, you're you're not even coupling objects anymore. You're coupling um, concepts, more more about concepts. And I don't know what's the next level down there, but um, but there's something interesting there. But back on your question about like how do you do this in the real real world? Um, there's there's a there, one thing that I think that might bear some thought and investigation is um, not surprisingly some things that have parallels in the real world. So. Um, there's a notion in architecture and, and just building planning and stuff like that of um, defensive architecture. And it goes, goes by a couple of different names, but this is basically when you go out and you see those little metal studs on concrete blocks to keep people from skating, you know, doing yeah. rail, rail grinds and things like that. Um, but it's even more insidious in some ways. It's park benches that have partitions in between, armrests in the, in the middle of mm-hmm. them so that you can't lay on them, right? Um, they don't want, it's, it's to keep homeless people essentially from sleeping on these park benches. Um, and that kind of stuff is pervasive and almost invisible in a way. But I wonder if there's something like that that we could do in our architectures and our designs. Um, as more senior folks that are starting off a project, hopefully it's Greenfield, maybe it's not, are there ways that we can create architectures that, that are defensive, um, that don't allow you to make mistakes or make them super obvious when you do make them or when you're straying from an established pattern. And that, that is one of the areas that um, I, I think that we have, there's, there's some work to be done there. And uh, you mentioned before just um, discoverability. Like that's one of those ways where if you can show, if, if it's easy to understand where something is, that, that helps out a lot. But with some of the stuff I was talking about with this, you know, for example, this mediator pattern, um, it's hard, it's much harder to stray from that pattern because you actually have to, to do anything in the system. You actually have to create a class that asks a question and you create a handler that answers the question. If you are just, if, if you're not just completely oblivious, you can see that that is the pattern that is in your system. And because of that, the way that it's set up is it's very hard to start making objects that do too much. It's, it's a, there's an insulation factor mm-hmm. to it um, because you can't make it terrible. Uh, it's harder to make it terrible because it just doesn't work that well when you stuff a bunch of things in, into one object, one handler to handle. Yeah. Like you're not going to ever have a handler that handles 15 different things because nobody's ever asking 15 questions at once, right? So those are oh, I've, those I've are seen some people there. who can do it. <laughs> yeah, it you know, there's a there's a guy. Um, uh, I forget the name. There's a there's a, a fairly famous book um, called The Design of Everyday Things, and this is where the idea of affordances came from. And affordances are um, we use them wrong, but the idea is that the affordance is um, is basically the behavior that something that that you can use on something. Like if if there's a, a coffee cup with a handle, I, I can interact with it. Um, by holding the handle. And we've, we've taken it to, to basically mean that the handle is the affordance, but it's really about the behavior. Anyways, 
what if we can make affordances in our code, like make it abundantly clear what the structure of the code is, is and like the way that it's intended to be interacted with. So like clear naming is one thing, but, and we mentioned things like directory structure that we can use to like communicate the design of the application without even opening the code. Um, you know, some of the other things, the mediator pattern we just mentioned, put the commands and queries in separate folders it defines the high-level messages that are in the system and, and what are being passed around, and it sort of describes the core functionality of the system without even opening your text editor. So it's kind of like an affordance in that way. Um, another interesting way that I've seen uh, that I've put to use is, um, are you guys familiar with Conway's Law? Um, Conway's Law basically says that organizations that design anything, they're constrained to produce designs which are copies of the communication structures inside of the organization. So the idea is that if you have these super siloed teams that don't talk to one another, they're going to build super siloed code that doesn't talk to each other very well. And this has been shown over and over again. <laughs> that sounds like um, the real world everywhere. <laughs> it is. And it's funny because you can actually see somebody's created um, a, a few pictures of Conway's Law, and it'll show things like Facebook, where um, the way that they're structured is there is no structure. It's a graph. Like, it's anybody talks to anybody. And what came out of that, this graph structure, the social graph structure that is so prevalent. You look at something um, like, I don't know, um, Apple. It's a circle with Steve Jobs in the middle and everybody talking to Steve Jobs, right? right. So right. It's, it's really powerful. And where I find it's powerful is, is not just in its sort of like ha-ha factor. It's that you can actually put Conway's Law to work for you. And let's say that you want to create sections of your code that are walled off and don't have sprawl. I've, I've taken teams um, and I've split, uh, I split off sub teams from them and actually put them in a different part of a building and had them live there while they created that piece of code. And it turned out to be walled off and didn't talk to the other code very well. So you can be pretty creative. And if there's areas in, in the architecture where you don't want there to be sprawl, you don't want there to be, um, sort of uh, rot of, of your cohesion. Um, think about how you can actually uh, move members of the team somewhere else. This may be hard in some organizations, but think about if you can't move where you are, maybe move your, change your communication structures. Maybe, I don't know, this is crazy. Maybe you don't have, have everybody go into the same standup if you're doing Scrum. You know, maybe you actually have two separate sort of sub teams that deal with this stuff. I'm, d I'm dying to ask this. how offshore teams affect all this, but I think that's a whole nother show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, that's the, yeah, that's a fascinating one um, for sure. And I think that again, you know, they're affected by, by Conway's law. They play right into it as well. So um, I haven't ever found unless you are in uh, very close contact with offshore folks all the time um, that they're ever able to be that tightly you know, they're, you don't end up with a lot of cohesion amongst the team itself. So that, that would be an interesting one to take a look at. There's one thing I, I found fascinating to think about. A few years ago, I don't know, it's probably about 10 years ago, the government was trying to figure out how to solve the problem of nuclear waste containment. And specifically, what, how do we communicate to future human beings that this is not a place that you want to be messing around? Um, and they were looking at 10,000 years, because that's how long this particular nuclear waste would take to become uh, not uh, harmful anymore. So if you start thinking about 
how do you communicate to people that might not even speak English in 10,000 years that might not even have the same idioms? Like for us, what do we think of for poison, a skull and crossbones? Well, that hasn't always been a thing. And it might not be even something that you would even be able to comprehend or make any sense out of in a thousand or 10,000 years. Um, and so they came up with some, some really fascinating designs about how they would communicate to basically aliens in the future about that this is a bad place to be. Don't come here. Don't dig here. This is not a place of happiness or worship or, or value. This is a place that we do not value. And walled things off in a way. And they did it with things like uh, earthworks. Like they would create these, um, this is out in the desert. They would create uh, these gigantic looming like walls that are black. And because they're out in the desert, they're just hot. Like they bake down on you and they make you physically uncomfortable to be there. Um, they had this idea of like um, a field of thorns. So think about like a thorn bush, um, but with these thorns like sticking up out of the ground, 40 feet tall, made out of concrete. They just look menacing, right? They don't look like it's uncomfortable for you to be there. Um, and so I think that there is something that we could do there. I think there's things that we can do to put those kinds of affordances into the system and make it crystal clear about this is this is where the code belongs. This is the thing that you're about to add. It doesn't belong here, or maybe it does. Clearly, if you're dealing with something like this mediator where you have handlers that handle a very specific question, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't belong in there. And it's super clear. It's crystal clear. Don't put that here. It doesn't make sense. Well, and so do you have any kind of examples or, or do you think, are there going to be any kind of universal ways to do that? Or is it going to depend on the, on the project or both? What are your thoughts on that? Honestly, I think that we're not good enough yet. I think that we're, I think in this industry, we're so, it's still so immature and things are moving so fast that even the constructs that I talk about here, they pertain to object oriented programming as we know it today. And, um, that's yeah, not, yeah. that's not even in vogue in a lot of places anymore. So the things that we yeah. talk about there just are not going to be the same problems in a, in a functional language. For example, they, they solve these problems in very different ways. Um, but I think that we talk about code quality a lot in this industry. And I've sort of come to the conclusion that maybe code quality is not that it's not the important thing. Like, I don't mean to say that it's not important, but we don't even know what it is. We don't know what good quality code is. Like I was saying at the beginning, your code sucks because it's not how I would solve it. There's, there's not a lot of, uh, of, of measurements um, yeah, maybe you solved it in a way that seems wrong because well, you don't understand, but we don't have any, which is inherently, subjective. we don't have any objective yeah. measurements, uh, or qualitative measurements that tell me yeah. if my code is good or not. We can look at certain things like performance. Um, we can look at, um, you know, cyclomatic complexity. We can look at cohesion and coupling in a lot of different ways, and we can sort of start to triangulate whether or not a piece of code is good. Um, but we don't, you take two people and ask them what is what code quality means and it's going to be all over the map. So, uh, you know, that's, that's one of the things that's really challenging about any of this is that we don't agree on anything in this industry. We don't agree upon what is good. Um, we don't agree upon what patterns are good or bad. Um, and so, you know, that, that makes it 
difficult, especially when you get out into the real world, back to your teams, um, to try to try to convince anybody um, that these things are, are are good ways to go. Um, I don't know. I don't know what the what the answer is. I think that we just have to keep at it. I think we have to be having these conversations. Um, I think we have to be asking our the questions um, as we look at code. I like to just look at like back to the the kind of code sprawl thing is like it used to be that you could walk to the grocery store, right? Can't do that in most places anymore. I like to think of things like how walkable is your code? How many steps do you have to take to get from the message coming in to the message being responded to or received? If it's 15 different objects, if it's uh, a whole bunch of layers of indirection and abstraction, um, if it's uh, you have something coming in from one side, you know, it's coming in from a, a form and it's being mapped into a model and then that model gets passed to uh, your your whatever object that deals with it and then it's mapping it to a DTO so that it can send it to your repository and then something goes into the database and then it comes back the other way and you map it back and it goes, this is nonsense. This is crazy. Like the code isn't walkable at all. It's uh, it, it becomes very difficult to even reason about it and you end up with just a whole bunch of ceremony uh, to, to do even the simplest things. And so I think we just have to be talking about how we make things simple, how we, how, how, how we can isolate things. And that's the thing that's fascinating to me about this talk about urban sprawl is we have physical, uh, analogs to this stuff that we can draw upon. And, um, analogy is, is such a fundamental, um, cognitive tool that we use, um, in our brains and, and I, I find that that can be a very powerful way to start telling these stories. Um, and I think that's, to wrap it up, for me, that's what I think is uh, sort of interesting about um, talking about code sprawl and, and sort of um, comparing it to what we see in the real world. It sounds like a show. And you, listener, what do you think? How walkable is your code? Uh, have you ever used any of these techniques on your code bases? Or are you interested in trying them out now? We'd love to know. Please leave a comment on the website, staticvoidpodcast.com, or send an email to comments at staticvoidpodcast.com. And as always, if you have a topic you'd like us to discuss on the show, please feel free to let us know through those same channels. We want to make sure that we're talking about the things that you want to hear about. So, Matt, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Chris, Todd, thank you, as usual. Yep. Yeah, that was awesome. And thank you, listener, for spending the time with us. We hope that you enjoyed it, and we look forward to seeing you next time on the Static Void Podcast. <laughs>